Doctor's Lounge. Career Check at your service this week. Thanks very much for joining us. The Doctor's Lounge is supported by the Doctor Patient Care Foundation. We are a 501c3 dedicated to the education of legislators, bureaucrats, physicians, patients, uh, just about everyone who has a stake in healthcare, which means just about every soul on the planet. Uh, we thank you for joining us today. We've got some interesting stuff to talk about, especially on the wake of uh, Dr. Howe's show last week with Marion Mass as his guest, um, talking about uh, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal that they were able to publish that finally puts the shortcomings of electronic medical records in the national spotlight in the journal in a way that we haven't had uh, an opportunity to do before, and that's that's terrific. Uh, it does point to sort of a broader picture of sort of a different approach to healthcare reform that may be taking shape, and we will talk about that in detail. It'll be the topic of our show today. Now, before we get to that, I just want to hit up on some news topics, some stuff sort of at the top of the show to uh, to talk about. And the first one I think you've all heard already. It's come out in the last 48 hours or so, uh, which uh, President Trump uh, fires VA Secretary David Skulkin, Skulkin after uh, 14 months of, of service um, for Donald Trump. He was also the last cabinet holdover from the Obama administration. And you can read the general details just about anywhere. But what I wanted to do from a, from a healthcare standpoint is maybe look at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, the news reports will tell you about the, that there was a, he had a problem with a lavish trip uh, that uh, I guess he put too much of this on the government tab. He accepted a gift, uh, tickets to, I think, Wimbledon from uh, someone in Britain, uh, and all this stuff is sort of verboten, apparently. Um, you know, it's a common theme. There are other folks that are near and dear to us that have had similar issues with trips and gifts and use of government money and stuff. So uh, you wonder how this stuff happens, and I still... And I wonder if you know, folks that are supposed to advise these leaders uh, perhaps advise them badly, because I can't imagine that these these experienced folks uh, regarding Washington would make mistakes this obvious. At least they appear obvious after the fact, unless somebody was was advising them badly. But in the wake of that report, uh, David Skulkin then accused subordinates and White House operatives are trying to undermine his position and to try to get him fired. So that makes sense, too. That, you know, what a great way to get your leader fired if you want him out uh, by giving them bad advice and then probably tipping someone else off on it. Uh, and uh, so that... that um but that stuff you can read anywhere. What I did is I went and looked for different sorts of publications covering this. And so I found one um, from uh, Military Times, uh, which I guess is a publication that serves the armed forces. Uh, I confess up front I don't know a lot about it. And I've not read anything there before. But I wanted to get an idea of how the military uh, was, was thinking about this and how veterans were thinking about this. And so um, I did find some interesting stuff in here. Apparently, uh, veterans groups... Um, such as the American Legion really liked um, Secretary Skulkin and have said they will miss him. Uh, they're sad to hear that that uh, that he's going. Uh, you know, yes, they've said the niceties about looking forward to working with the next uh, person uh, who's been nominated to replace, which is apparently the White House physician. Uh, the, the, the personal White House physician, and uh, apparently this is someone who's not had any leadership experience in such a role. So it should be interesting, but I was a little surprised, I have to say, to, to discover that, that veteran groups seem very much to like Secretary Skulkin and that uh, 
you know, it's interesting that one, he's fired in the first place, but I guess after you get, you know, set up by your staff, and again, that's my opinion and conjecture, uh, and then uh, ratted out by them, I guess that's that's what has to happen. But it seems to be a common theme. I hope the folks who replace them uh, understand the hazards of, uh, of getting advice from people that, that they may or may not uh, be able to trust. But uh, interesting situation. So the second story that I want to talk to you about, it's not really a news story, but it's a, it's a publication that was uh, published on March 13th. So what's that going to be? About two weeks ago, a little bit more. Um, came from Harvard Medical School. And it was, uh, well, I don't know what they call it, a special communication. It was in, the, in JAMA, the Journal of the Medical, American Medical, I can't talk, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, which docs all know. Uh, and this was a, um, a special communication entitled Healthcare spending in the United States and other high-income countries, right? We've seen articles like this before, uh, but this is interesting, one, because of the uh, mistakes that they continue to make, and I don't know if they continue to make the mistakes out of ignorance or out of service to an agenda. We'll let you be the judge. But this was yet another one of these articles written about how much the United States spends on health care, comparing that to expenditures of other high-income countries, and pointing out all of the horrible disparities. So let's walk through uh, exactly what their uh, results were. And, and, and none of this is going to surprise you. But, uh, we'll go ahead and do that anyway. This is in 2000, this is 2016 data, so as recent as you can get. In 2016, the United States spent nearly twice as much as 10 other high-income countries on medical care and performed less well on population health outcomes, right? And this is the same crap we've heard time and time again. And if you go to the actual results and walk through this, what do they find? Okay, in 2016, the U.S. spent 17.8% of its gross domestic product on health care spending. Uh, that's about twice as much as other countries ranging from Australia that spent 9.6%, Switzerland 12.4%, etc., 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 documenting that the U.S. had the highest proportion of health insurance, the lowest proportion of smokers, the highest proportion of obese people at 70.1% for the United States. And yet, and this is, you've heard this before, um, stop me if you've heard it before, but life expectancy, life expectancy in the United States was the lowest of all 11 countries that were in the comparison at 78.8 years for the United States, with a range in the other countries of 80.7 to 83.9 years, with the mean of all the other non-U.S. countries being 81.7 against our 78.8. And yeah, I've heard this before, infant mortality was the highest in the United States, 5.8 deaths per 1,000 live births versus 3.6% for all the other 11 countries that were in the comparison. Now, you've heard this before. I'm not going to belabor the point. You've heard me talk about this before. Life expectancy is a terrible measure of the performance of a health care system. Life expectancy measures the social conditions, right? One, you need to have clean air and clean water. Uh, and number two, uh, literacy, income, um, and lifestyle, right? All of these obese patients, and by the way, I don't believe that obesity is, is the responsibility of your doctor. The, the weight I carry around my middle is not my doctor's fault. It's my fault and nobody else's. Uh, and, and lifestyle. And, and those are the things that regulate in genetics that regulate lifestyle. Most of these other countries have a far less genetically diverse makeup than the United States does. We've been through this all before. I, I'm not going to go through the whole thing again, but if you've listened to me at all, 
you know what the, the shortcomings are of trying to use infant mortality and life expectancy as any kind of a valid measure of the performance of a healthcare system. Yet, here are the folks from Havid doing exactly the same thing as everyone has always done. Uh, I certainly would expect more from the medical school that once again, most recently, was voted the best medical school in the United States. I would expect better. So here's more that's in the study. Uh, the, the, the number of doctors per population, 2.6 physicians per 1,000, is about the same. 11.1 nurses per 1,000 population is the same in all of the countries in the comparison. Not much difference between the number of doctors per patient population, number of nurses per patient population, number of hospital beds per patient population are all about the same. Right? We have the same utilization, and this is very, very important. Listen to this. We have the same utilization as other countries for hospital admissions, common operations like coronary artery bypass grafting, grafting hip replacement, knee replacement. We operate about at, at about the same utilization levels as other countries. Why is this important? Because how many times do we hear the do-gooders and the social engineers and the folks who fancy themselves smart enough to tell the rest of society what to do, that utilization is the problem. We overutilize, right? What's the, what's the great uh, mantra of the quality argument? Is physicians get paid by fee for service, and that means that there's too much incentive to overutilize, there's too much incentive to overdeliver care, too much incentive, etc., etc., etc. Well, this study, and the habit people don't even pick up on this, but it's there, is this study proves that's wrong. That fee, we have a fee-for-service system, but it doesn't encourage overutilization. Or if it does, you don't see it here. You know, the rates of utilization of, of high-profit things like hospital admissions and orthopedic procedures, rates of utilization are the same. What they didn't even investigate, incredibly, is how much do those procedures cost? Yeah, we do about the same number of hip replacements per thousand population. But what's the hip replacement cost in Australia? What's it cost in Switzerland? What's it cost in Japan? Versus what it costs in the United States. How about seeing if there's any difference in cost there? Didn't even look at that. They did find a couple of things that do point to reasons why there are cost differences. And these won't surprise you. Again, they kind of mention them, but don't really give them the attention they deserve. Pharmaceuticals. How much do we spend per capita on pharmaceuticals in the United States? About $1,443 per person in the United States versus a range in the other affluent countries in the study of between 466 per person and 939 per person. Huge jump to the United States. Why? Well, they didn't look, right? Do we give too many pills? Maybe. They didn't look at that. But what about the cost per pill, theoretical pill? What about pharmacy benefit managers? What about all the price gouging that goes on in the United States? Why does that happen? Because we have overregulation, because we have third-party payers and no price transparency. But, of course, does this come out in the Havid study? No, not at all. They choose to ignore all this, but the data are right here that prove that there's that, that overutilization is not the problem. Fee for service is not the problem. Utilization management is not the solution. Quality measures are not the solution. ACOs are not the solution. It's all here in a study that you can read that shows the problem. 
And they talk about one other thing. Of course. Physician salaries. Right? This is all coming out again, right? Didn't I read somewhere? I didn't research it for the show that, that uh, doctors in Canada turned down their raise. They turned down their government-approved raise because of some, uh, you know, holier-than-thou position the physicians are paid too much. Really? Well, the study says, yes, physicians are paid more than other countries. Right, average uh, generalist salary, um, $218,000 versus a range of eighty six to one hundred fifty four, And that's all fine, well, and good, but they don't look at the whole picture. They don't look at the fact that American physicians have to pay for their own medical education and that the average debt of a physician coming out of training interest plus principal is about $400,000. And that physician salaries only take up, physician take-home pay only takes up 8% of the total health care pie. So, once again, we have a study that's got some data, uh, but, again, has been written more to serve an agenda than to communicate effectively. We're at the end of segment one. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Career check with you this week. Next week, Dr. Hal is back as we begin segment two. So... I guess I'll begin with an apology. I don't know. I have, of course, the more I read that Harvard study we talked about at the end of the last segment, the matter I got, and you got once again a full-blown rant over how the uh, the intelligentsia at the top of the medical food chain still can't get it right, still either can't understand or quite possibly refuses to acknowledge. Uh, the, the gaping defects in their thought processes that lead to these editorials and special communications and, uh, and what have you. But, but there it is, and I'm sure it'll happen again, and when it does, I'll bring it to you and lose my cool all over again. I guess that's just the way it goes. But at least we'll keep you up to date on what the, uh, the repeated failures of the top of the medical elite uh, continue to commit. So be it. But let's go ahead and move on now to what I promised you at the top of the hour I was going to talk about, which is to consider, or at least acknowledge, the potential utility of a change in strategy regarding how we approach health care reform. Because this is an election year, right? People ask, 
I'll say people ask me all the time, and people ask me once in a while, especially when we talk about the radio show, what I think is going to go on in the election, what role healthcare policy will play in this election year and the upcoming election as the months tick by and we get closer and closer to primaries, uh, likely runoffs, and the, the general election in November. And they say, well, what, what role is healthcare going to play? You think healthcare reform will come up again? In 2018, and I will say, in in the conventional manner, at least in the manner it came up in 2017, definitely not. The party in power tried and failed consistently to repeal Obamacare. In the end, what we got was a repeal of the mandate in a tax reform package, which doesn't really amount to much, and in fact, it may actually damage. Uh, our efforts to continue to improve the healthcare system because now Obamacare is not Obamacare anymore, it's Trump care because the mandate was one of the fundamental you know, tenets of Obamacare. So without the mandate, Obamacare is not Obamacare anymore and anything bad that happens can be blamed on repealing the individual mandate. So, you know, not much good happened last year despite incredibly high expectations held by everyone, including me. Uh, about what was going going to go on. So if health care policy is approached at all this year, or even next year for that matter, I think it has to be by a completely different approach. Right? We tried the political approach. Right? The political approach was to say, okay, Obamacare, the passage of Obamacare was primarily a political event. Uh, it was a triumph of the left over everyone else and very little more than that. It was a government power grab. It was a government money grab. It was all of those things. Um, but in, in effect, it was really more of the same. It didn't really, there was no revolution in healthcare policy there. It was just more regulation. Uh, it was simply a continuation of what's been going on for 50 years, which explains the effect of Obamacare on healthcare costs, which is that they continue to rise probably in the same way they would have anyway. That does mean that Obamacare did fail because it promised to reduce costs. Right. Remember, Obama even said $2,500 savings per family per year. Instead, it's gone up by three times that. So we know that Obamacare has failed, but what the proponents will say is, well, it would have been even worse without Obamacare. And then the debate just kind of deteriorates and there's really nothing good left to say. So we need another approach, right? That was the political approach. That was left versus right, Republican versus Democrats, liberal versus conservative, and... That didn't get anywhere. So we try something else, perhaps. And again, some of this was inspired by conversations I had with Marion Mass, so I'm happy to give her a shout-out and a plug about this. Uh, some of it had to do with the recent meeting that they had in Washington that Pete Sessions has every year. Um, they kindly invited me to speak. I couldn't make it up there, and they were kind enough to let me create a set of PowerPoint slides, video the whole thing, and send it up there, and then do the Q&A live uh, by GoTo meeting, and that all worked very well, I think, and I'm grateful to them for uh, for putting up with that and, and allowing me to, to speak anyway. But part of what came out of all of that work was this idea that we need to change the approach from a political attack to a an economic analysis. Right. Let's get rid of the uh, the trenches. Let's get rid of the trench warfare. Right. You know, uh, conservatives you know dig a trench and 100 feet away, the liberals dig a trench and everybody just shoots at each other and but nothing happens. That's what's going on now. That's what's been going on since the 70s. So different approach. 
is uh, forget about looking at the politics. Forget about looking at, at legislation and, and directly, and just look at those parts of the healthcare system which cost money, but don't return any value. And I got to give the lecture on electronic medical records and health information technology. Uh, that was my piece of the pie. There were other things that were covered, right? We they, you know, I talked about IT by remote video. Uh, folks talked about pharmacy benefit managers, right, as another entity that costs a lot of money and returns very little value. And we've talked about that on the show before, right? We talked about pharmacy benefit managers. We talked about the EpiPen scandal last summer. And so we're familiar with how those folks can charge a whole lot of extra money and return nothing of value. Um, I'm going to give you my health IT talk here to finish the segment and, and, and sort of restructure what you've heard before to develop health IT as something that costs a lot of money that returns very little value. Um, we know that insurance companies charge a lot for, for non-high risk or non-catastrophic events, right, for routine checkups, for bumps, bruises, skin needs, routine diabetic care, uh, you know, routine coronary artery disease care that insurance companies give very little value because they're not managing any risk, right? We know that folks will go for regular checkups. We know that folks measured over a 10-year period will always be using health care. And so, you know, to manage health care, you know, to manage 90% of healthcare in an insurance model simply doesn't work. So insurers are another thing for most of healthcare that, that uh, you know, you, you pay $200 extra in benefits in order to obtain coverage for your routine health exam that only costs $100 if it were priced properly. Even less, really. So they add very little value in that paradigm. So the idea is instead of coming at this as a, you know, defeat the grid Democrats, repeal Obamacare as emotionally satisfying as we may find that really is not an intelligent approach. And we know it isn't because theoretically it doesn't make any sense and we know it isn't a good approach because they tried it last year three times and failed three times. So it's time to go with something else. So let's look at pharmacy benefit managers and do something to, uh, to diminish their impact. Uh, let's have transparent pricing. Let's do things to allow people to pay cash and, and that when, when someone's uh, cash price for a drug is less than their copay, allow the pharmacist to discuss that with the patient because right now they have gag clauses and they can't. Allow pharmacists to discuss that with patients so that if your cash price is cheaper, pay the cash price. And there's lots of other things. You know, PBMs is not my area of expertise, but there are folks that know more about this than I do who can tell you how we diminish and hopefully someday eliminate that cost. Um, same thing with insurers, right? If we have, you know, we've talked about direct primary care as that solution. You want to get rid of, you know, all the money that insurers skim off, skim off the top for care you know you're going to receive, right? It makes no sense to use an insurance model. You know, let's do health savings accounts. Let's do direct primary care. Let's allow us to use our health savings accounts to pay for direct primary care. Lots of neat stuff out there going on with that. And, uh, and then I got to give my talk on health IT. So I'm going to summarize that for you and finish out the segment. So here's the talk in a nutshell, right? We started off talking about uh, the, the, the promises that EMR made to the medical community and to the whole country back in 2009 through 2013 and talked about how, you know, 
it was supposed to be higher quality care, fewer errors, more efficient, less paperwork, etc., etc. The Rand Corporation promised we would save $81 billion a year if we used EMRs. That was back in 2005. Of course, none of that stuff has come to pass. And I reminded everybody the Meaningful Use program was completely based on a single survey-based article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2007. Uh, there were no objective studies to prove the safety and efficacy of uh, electronic medical records, and, and we've, we've paid the price. Uh, and, and I pulled an article that, that actually documents that uh, we've had significant safety issues linked to EMR usability or lack thereof. Uh, one study said that, uh, that errors in data entry was the most common uh, cause of safety-related incidents regarding patients. Uh, you know, the alerts that EMR uses, the fact that it uses too many and that they're poorly designed, which comes in second at 22%, interoperability 18%. Uh, lack of workflow support, 7%. So, you know, not only have we demonstrated uh, that, that there's been no studies proved that EMRs are safe and effective, there is a growing body of data to, you know, suggest what I've talked about for many years, which is that, you know, EMR introduces brand new sources of errors and brand new sources of patient safety concerns that haven't been studied, aren't well understood, and that, you know, we have a very, very significant problem there. Uh, you know, we talked about, you know, things like, you know, the ER is a particularly uh, hazardous place to have an electronic medical record because, you know, a doc may be working on four or five different patients at once or more than that. Uh, you know, it used to be in the old system that you would talk to the nurse taking care of each patient and you had an extra set of competent brains helping keep things straight. You don't have that anymore with a computer. If you have a error in data entry in a computer and you, you enter an order for, you know, Mrs. Smith's CAT scan of the brain and actually incidentally goes to Mr. Jones that, uh, you know, there's, there's precious little in the way to stop that error from going all the way through. You know, we've talked about the concepts of diagnosis momentum, right? Enter a diagnosis in the chart once, it gets copied forever. Alert fatigue, right? Too many flags, you ignore them. Copy-paste issues. Um, and we've talked about all of this before, but the point is that, that EMRs have become an extremely expensive proposition in an era when cost is the major issue in healthcare, and here we are spending a bunch of money, uh, and I even found another interesting thing that shows that the quality reporting that goes with electronic medical records not only has caused harm to patients, right, the readmission reduction program says if you readmit a congestive heart failure patient within 30 days, you must have done something wrong so you get dinged. Turns out that program has increased 30-day and one-year mortality for congestive heart failure. So we discovered that if you have a, 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 an incentive program that discourages you from readmitting a patient with heart failure who's supposed to be admitted, guess what? They die. Well, you know, thanks for that. I'm glad we spent all this money and, and far more sadly cost people their lives over a program like this because, um, you know, we, we've got the bureaucrats running the show. Uh, we'll finish this in segment three. You've been listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. 
That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge once again on America's Web Radio. We are delighted to have you with us today. I am Dr. Mike Karuchak. I am at the helm for today's show today. It is good to be with you. Thank you very much for your time and attention. The Doctor's Lounge is broadcast live on America's Web Radio every Thursday morning at 8 o'clock and is available at your convenience via podcast. So... The elephant in the room for the show that follows the State of the Union Address is obviously to discuss the State of the Union Address, and and there is not a whole lot in there about health care. I'm not going to try and compete, nor would it be appropriate for this particular show to talk about the State of the Union in general. Uh, There are lots of people way smarter than I am doing that, and you've probably already listened to all of that. So what I'm going to do is, is zoom in on those parts of the State of the Union Address that tackled health care, and there were several. I didn't think there was that many as a general impression at the end of the speech, but when I went back and reviewed the transcript and reviewed the, the speech itself by audio, I realized there was a little bit more substance in there than I really thought at first glance. There was actually about four or five major talking points that were brought out. They were certainly dwarfed by the bigger things, the immigration and the tax cut and uh, other some uh, other things, but put them all together and you've got a, a fair amount of substance that was addressing health care and the things that he didn't say I think were just as important as the things that he did say. So I've got several sound bites to share with you. So we're going to bring the cart back up again here and we'll play the first of these. Here we go. We eliminated an especially cruel tax that fell mostly on Americans making less than $50,000 a year, forcing them to pay tremendous penalties simply because they couldn't afford government-ordered health plans. We repealed the core of the disastrous Obamacare. The individual mandate is now gone. Well, that's uh, that's a big one. Uh, that, that's about all he says about Obamacare through the entire State of the Union address. But, and I agree with the pundits that I heard today, this is not my idea, it's theirs, that this description of the uh, disastrous Obamacare certainly um, destroys any attempt to reach across the aisle, uh, certainly sets the tone for the rest of the speech, despite some hints uh, from his crew to the contrary. This pretty much... Uh, it kills any effort to do anything bipartisan and certainly sets the tone for the rest of the speech. But this is all you're going to hear about Obamacare repeal. Everything else is much more specific and 
less ambitious than a full repeal of Obamacare. And when we get through all the clips, um, I will sort of walk you through why I think that's a pretty good strategy. Next, we move on to some of these smaller issues. So he has been doing some work with the VA. And you know, we've talked about the VA and how disastrous and horrible the VA is and, and how you know disgusting it is that the folks who, who lay down their lives for this country get such poor care. Uh, and, and it's interesting that, that he brought this up. I, I, I was not fully versed on the VA Accountability Act and what's gone on with that so far, but uh, here are Mr. Trump's comments. Last year, Congress also passed, and I signed, the landmark VA Accountability Act. Since its passage, my administration has already removed more than 1,500 VA employees who fail to give our veterans the care they deserve. And we are hiring talented people who love our vets as much as we do. So, interesting stuff. He also made a comment that I wasn't able to capture on a sound clip that, that referenced choice for veterans seeking care, which I assume is this program that's supposedly in place to allow vets to go outside the VA if their care is delayed beyond a certain point. We have learned from guests on this show with Dr. Hal that that program is not nearly working as well as advertised. Uh, I'm not sure the president is aware of that or not. Uh, moving on to 1,500 employees that have been dismissed, well, I guess that's a reasonable start. Um, no, nothing that I know of has been published or discussed to know if these are yielding any tangible results in some of the worst places regarding the VA. But certainly, in a first year, uh, as long as he pledges to continue to work to improve the care of veterans, you know, we have our opinion about what needs to happen. The VA simply needs to go away, and vets need to be given... A, an insurance card or, or a Medicare equivalent that allows them to simply go out into the uh, healthcare system overall as opposed to making them live with a single-payer system, you know, the equivalent of the National Health Service or the Canadian healthcare, which we know doesn't work, whether it's the VA or Canada or the UK, uh, that a single-payer system is a disaster and we take the most deserving class of people in our country and force them to live with that. That's bad. But at least it's, it is slightly better than nothing and with a whole lot of other issues to deal with. Hopefully this, this comes around as part of a, of a bigger re revision of the healthcare system over the next several years uh, that VEST can take advantage of as much as everyone else. The next clip I've got I think is, well, the next clip is actually the FDA. I'm sort of doing these in, in chronological order. So he also mentions that the FDA is accomplishing some things. Here we go. Exciting progress is happening every single day. To speed access to breakthrough cures and affordable generic drugs, last year the FDA approved more new and generic drugs and medical devices than ever before in our country's history. So fair enough, a deed that stands on its own words and its own merits, that's fine. Um, you know, hopefully they're maintaining a, a level of margin of safety. That, that hasn't been the problem. The problem has been too much regulation and having things move too slowly. So 
with a certain amount of caution, I think it's reasonable to acknowledge that it's a trend in the right direction. Um, next item is really cool, and, and this is something that we have talked about uh, on the show uh, in passing on multiple occasions, uh, something called the right to try. We also believe that patients with terminal conditions, terminal illness, should have access to experimental treatment immediately that could potentially save their lives. People who are terminally ill should not have to go from country to country to seek a cure. I want to give them a chance right here at home. It's time for Congress to give these wonderful, incredible Americans the right to try. So very interesting how he structures that. He kind of leads up to the, uh, you know, the the pitch phrase, the buzz phrase that we talk about, right to try, which if you're in the right circles and a listener of the show, that you'll understand immediately what that means just by the term. Um, interesting that he went to great lengths to include that term, the right to try, and uh, certainly we have always agreed with that. Uh, it's a relatively limited in scope idea, um, but I think everybody can agree on that, hopefully. Um, next, we'll get into the, the last of, well, not the last, the next to last, actually the two biggest of the issues that he brought up. The first is prescription drug prices, and the second is opioids. So I'll let him go into his treatise on prescription drug prices, and then we'll talk about how one should interpret that. One of my greatest priorities is to reduce the price of prescription drugs. In many other countries, these drugs cost far less than what we pay in the United States, and it's very, very unfair. That is why I've directed my administration to make fixing the injustice of high drug prices one of my top priorities for the year. Okay, good as far as it goes. Notice the approach here is very different. When he talked about right to try, which is a far safer topic, uh, he went at went straight at the issue and used the term right to try. In the drug price discussion, for lack of a better term, very short discussion, um, he was very careful to stay vague for some reason. So let's look at what he didn't mention. He didn't mention uh, pharmacy benefit managers. He didn't mention big pharma. He really didn't name the enemy. He left it very vague, and I'm a little disturbed by his reference to cheap drug prices in other countries, because the reason drug prices are cheaper in other countries is because they're controlled by the government. They have price controls on these things in many places, and so to suggest that other countries somehow have the solution and we don't might lead to a solution in this country which isn't good, because fixing drug prices isn't going to help. What we need is transparency in drug prices and the elimination of pharmacy benefit managers and the exposure of their horrible rebate-based pricing practices and the extortion that they put on drug suppliers to put build rebates into the pricing structure so that you'll be included in a drug company's formulary, in a, in a PBM's formulary. And so 
yeah, I'm, I'm a little concerned, and again, it, maybe he had to do this for political reasons, I don't know, but I'm concerned with the verbiage there that Trump is missing the point, although acknowledging that high prescription drug prices is a major problem is obviously at least a start. So the last clip. Talking about opioids. Now, if you saw the speech, you, we know that he went into a very, very touching story about a couple, uh, one of which I think was a policeman or an EMT or something that came upon a drug-addicted pregnant mom who was about to inject herself with heroin, and they, he got her to stop, and they adopted the child, and it was a beautiful, touching moment. I'm not going to replay all of that, but at least give you the introduction to his introductory remarks to the opioid issue. These reforms will also support our response to the terrible crisis of opioid and drug addiction. Never before has it been like it is now. It is terrible. We have to do something about it. In 2016, we lost 64,000 Americans to drug overdoses. 174 deaths per day, seven per hour. We must get much tougher on drug dealers and pushers if we are going to succeed in stopping this scourge. Okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. i got 30 seconds to the end of the segment. Again, I'm a little bit concerned. Um, it's easy to jump on pushers and all those folks, and certainly they're, they're bad, evil people, and we need to go after them and get them behind bars for sure. But I think, again, a major point missed here is that most of the new cases of opioid addiction, as I understand it, uh, many of those come from folks who are using prescription opioids as opposed to illicit ones. We'll pick this up in the next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Career Chat at your service. Uh, I alternate weeks with the inimitable Dr. Hal Shirts on the Doctor's Lounge at America's Web Radio. Hal will be with you next week. Uh, we are finishing up the first of our topics today, uh, which is to pick apart the President's State of the Union message from night before last uh, and look at the health care pieces of 
what he had to say and sort of analyze those. And we had just finished talking about the opioid uh, issue and that uh, he certainly mentioned appropriately uh, that it's a terrible problem. Seven deaths per minute is an interesting number to kind of put out there to give one an appreciation. I'm sorry, seven deaths per hour uh, is an interesting way to sort of express a statistic that really brings it home. The example that he had with the couple who adopted the a child of an addicted mom was very touching. Uh, but I was a little concerned uh, the way he was talking about drug pushers as the major problem. Um, that's a well-acknowledged issue, and I'm not saying it's not a problem, but we did sort of fit in just at the end of the hour, and I wanted to flesh the point out a little bit, that uh, that most of these folks, maybe not most, many of the folks who are addicted to opioids start out with prescription opioids given to them for legitimate medical problems and they use these things long enough that they become addicted uh, and the real major issue is the prescriptions that are given out with the best of intentions by physicians and others um, but uh, and, and at the state level this is getting dealt with at least at some level in Georgia there's going to be a big registry that actually went live first of the year uh, and so I think there needs to be more work done on the, the, the legitimate medical side where people are getting hooked on things. And there's a lot of, of legitimate issues out there. We've talked about some of these before. Uh, there was a very uh, you know incestuous, unholy alliance between uh, the Joint Committee of Accreditation of Hospitals and the manufacture of OxyContin and this whole concept of the pain scale and that JCAH required hospitals to adopt and use a pain scale a 1 to 10 pain scale for hospitalized patients. And then the idea was to treat with pain medication until pain was fully controlled as opposed to just treating until the patient was comfortable but still feeling some pain. And there's a huge difference between those, the amount of medicine you give, and, and how that can really get folks to be addicted. And if memory serves, there's even a class action lawsuit or a lawsuit of some kind against JCO uh, for uh, that practice. So, you know, it's... Not to, to diminish the, the horrible role of drug dealers or drug pushers, but there's certainly more to the opioid problem than that, and I'm concerned that that that, that his, his remarks there kind of missed the point a bit. So let's talk about all, this entire body of healthcare comments together. We have the Obamacare uh, repeal of the individual mandate that he mentioned, uh, you know, with the adjective, I think he said disastrous Obamacare, you know, certainly, you know, turning the, the, the Democrats off and sort of shutting down any sort of, number one, shutting down any sort of dialogue. And, and also, I think the administration has decided, and I think they decided this at a strategic planning meeting uh, in uh, in January earlier this month, or earlier last month, that, um, that, that uh, repeal of Obamacare as a giant project is not going to be on the agenda for 2018 the way it was in 2017. And I think that makes sense politically because if you failed at it last year, what are you going to do different that you're not going to fail at it this year? You don't want to fail at a health care issue so close to an election in November. So what do you do instead? What they're doing, and this is not a bad idea, is instead of trying to fix the entire healthcare system in one bill, which is to sort of knock off certain parts of it, and that does two things. One is it keeps the ball rolling on healthcare. The other is that when Republicans this election year get quizzed on healthcare policy, and you know that they will, that they will have talking points. 
They will have smaller talking points. They can talk about how the FDA is working better, how they've pledged to reduce drug prices, how they're working on the opioid epidemic. Uh, and so you have some talking points here that at least you can respond to those questions without getting painted into a corner saying that we have to go after Obamacare one more time. Well, you know, in a sense, they already did, although, you know, repealing just the individual mandate, I don't think it's going to make a whole lot of difference, unfortunately. My response to that from a doctor-patient care standpoint, from the standpoint of the movement of grassroots physicians among several groups, uh, of which we are one, is if they're looking for individual talking points, we've got them. Mr. President, we have other ones that you can use. We have our direct primary care initiative. We have our talking points and uh, issue with certificate of need and maintenance of certification, as well as malpractice reform, health information technology, and several others. Now, that may be too many vegetables to put on one plate, but we have ways and, and we have options to, to add to the body of talking points. And uh, hopefully as the months pass this year, you know, two things can happen. One is maybe we can flesh out talking points for the midterm election. But I think the real groundwork can be laid for 2019 to bring all of these things to the forefront after hopefully a favorable election. And again, there's a whole other topic that could burn up a whole hour and we're not going to do that. But um, it, it does, I think, give the grassroots physician groups about a half a dozen or so, of which were one, an opportunity to approach our government, our federal government, with another offer to help. And I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm contradicting myself because I've said so many times in the last few months on this show that government's never going to be able to solve this problem, and that, that may well be true. Uh, but uh, as, uh, as, as one of my colleagues, Dr. Marion Mass from Philadelphia, whom I've had the privilege of talking to on the phone for several hours this week, and Marion, I'm certainly grateful for your time, uh, is that at least we could make sure the government doesn't pass additional legislation that hurts the efforts we're trying to do outside of government to reform health care, such as direct primary care, such as working on some of these smaller issues at the state level. And, uh, you know, that may be the most appropriate strategy we can come up with. But I have been very impressed with the work that Marion has been doing, as she's told me this week, and, uh, you know, gives me maybe a little bit of renewed optimism for actually engaging Washington again. Next, we're going to move on to a couple of other topics. And um, I, I promised a couple of short discussions on two topics in health information technology uh, that uh, I think we need to do a bit of myth-busting on. And these are sort of the selling points that help the health information technology community has been putting out over the past couple of years. Because ever since they grew so big because of meaningful use and our, our forced implementation of health information technology that was not ready to be widely implemented, that every year they've come up with a gimmick. And that makes them no different than, I suppose, any other industry. But you remember in 2013, 2014, that was the year you were supposed to replace your bad EMR with a good one. That was a bunch of crap. And then we got cloud computing. If you weren't going to the cloud, well, you were missing the boat, which is odd because boats don't live in clouds. But uh, And now, this year, starting with the, the big hymns meeting last year, for the past 12 months, and it's gaining steam, is the whole concept of artificial intelligence. 
that this concept of, of, of computers that are so powerful and applications that are so powerful that they can begin to approach something that resembles intelligence, cognition, and can do really neat things. And IBM's been pushing this more than anyone. The CEO of IBM was the keynote speaker at the big health information technology convention called HIMSS. Uh, last year in Orlando, and IBM, of course, has Watson, which is this supercomputer that you know, allegedly does artificial intelligence, and that uh, IBM has done a great deal of bragging about how Watson can pick treatment protocols for cancer better than a team of doctors can. What they don't tell you, you know, it's almost like the Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, is behind Watson is an army of human beings, flesh and blood physicians, that continue to program protocols into Watson and what the selection criteria are for these protocols into Watson. And so really what you're doing isn't that exciting. It is nothing more than a drug, a, a cancer treatment protocol database that has all of the eligibility criteria for each protocol programmed in. So you enter a patient profile, it sees if any of the protocols have you know, an eligibility for that patient and then recommends based on eligibility. Well, I think I've been in IT long enough to say this. I mean, you could run that thing on a bloody laptop. There's nothing there that is terribly special. And so I don't really understand why they're touting this as artificial intelligence when it's really not. So as you listen to the hype from the health IT community talking about artificial intelligence, look at it with a jaundiced eye because it's really, I don't think, all that it's hyped up to be. And it also forces the health IT community to miss the point one more time, which is that physicians need, and I won't elaborate because I've said it so darn many times in this program, we need products that do the work for us. It's not glamorous to say that a EMR product will help you get your chest x-ray ordered faster. That doesn't make the marketing people's hearts go pitter-patter. But it's what we need. So, you know, the first phase of health IT expansion, the regulations prevented us from getting what we need. Now we may be entering another phase where a combination of regulations plus artificially created market hype over something that's not nearly as useful as they say it is, artificial intelligence. And again, it's causing them to take their eye off the ball and I end up having to make the same speech over and over again, but just modify it and say, pay no attention to the artificial intelligence concept. Please, please, please give us products that, that give us what we need, not what you, the vendors, think we need. There is one exception to this, the artificial intelligence issue. There is one place where artificial intelligence, I think, will make a great deal of progress over the next five to ten years. And this is both inside of medicine and outside of medicine. And it is image recognition and image analysis. Right? You've probably read about how artificial intelligence can do facial recognition. That's true. Take that same technology and turn it towards medicine. And I think in the next five to ten years, we're going to see artificial intelligence interpreting medical imaging whether that's a chest x-ray, a CAT scan, an ultrasound, or pathology slides. Wouldn't it be good if we had a machine that could support the pathologist in interpreting pathology slides to decide whether it's benign or it's malignant 
or one of those things, there, there, there may be something there. And I'm not a pathologist. And I understand that that concept sort of directly threatens pathologists and, and, I, and I understand and sympathize with that. But, but image analysis seems to be one of the very strong points, whether it's radiology or, um, or pathology. I think artificial intelligence really has the potential there. The, in the rest of medicine... I don't know. I, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot to do there. And the folks who think that artificial intelligence can replace doctors someday, well, maybe, but that's going to be many decades down the road. And those of us who understand the human side of medicine really don't fear artificial intelligence at all. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.